Friends, I want to invite you guys to turn now over to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 21 this morning. If you're here visiting with us this morning, perhaps considering Christianity for yourself, wondering what it means to be a Christian, what it would look like to follow Jesus, it's probably not a stretch to guess that, that part of why you're interested in Christianity and wondering about it is that you're interested in spiritual experience, something beyond the screens and the stuff that can so easily turn our heads, but that so easily and so often disappoints us. You know deep inside yourself that there's got to be more to who you are than what you put on your body or put in your belly or put in front of your eyes. If you're sensing that about yourself and that's what's brought you here this morning and made you interested in hearing more about Jesus, then what I want to tell you now is that you're right. At the heart of what Christianity offers is the something more that you've been wanting. At the heart of what Christianity offers is an encounter with God that you won't find anywhere else but through Jesus. It's an encounter so personal and intimate and transformational that the Bible speaks of it as an indwelling, an actual indwelling of a person by God's own spirit. Christianity hinges on a spiritual experience that transforms us from the inside out, but not based on a deeper self-awareness that we work our way to or more knowledge of what's within us, but based on a spirit that comes from without, that comes upon us and into us, working in us by his personal power, not by our own. A couple weeks back, we talked about the ascension of Jesus and how important it is to all the other gifts that Jesus gives to us. Everything else that he did in his life hinges on him rising to rule over all that is so that he can then give us, apply to us the things that he's accomplished for us in his death and his life and his resurrection. Something very similar we could say about what we look at this morning, about the story that's told this morning. Nothing Jesus did does anyone any good apart from the spirit who brings it home to us, who brings it to life for us. A moment ago, Stephanie read from Ezekiel chapter 36, one of the most important prophecies about the coming of God's spirit and and how it would lead to a new heart that allows us to to obey the law, not because we're afraid, not because we, we, we think we just have to, but because we want to, because we come to love what God loves. And the key to that passage, that promise, was that God was going to put his spirit inside of us. It's his spirit that would give us that new heart. That was just read a few moments ago. It's followed by a chapter that I think gives us a wonderful image of why the Spirit is so important for us to enjoy anything else that Jesus did. It comes in Ezekiel chapter 37, where Ezekiel has a vision of himself standing before a valley full of dry bones. These are are just dead bodies that have now been reduced simply to, to bones that are even disconnected from one another. And God says to him in his vision, stand before these bones and prophesy to them. As he prophesies to them, as he speaks the word God gave him to speak, all of a sudden what were dry bones begin to to form up into bodies, begin to be covered by, by real flesh. They have life now. It's an image that God gave to Ezekiel to give to us of what the Spirit does in us when he when he comes inside. 
He makes us new. He gives us life. So what we see in that image, and the important thing, I think, to understand what's, what's so important about what we're going to consider together this morning in Acts chapter 2, is that, is that nothing Jesus has done in his perfect life, in his death for sinners, in his resurrection to give us hope beyond the grave, none of that will do us any good unless first we're given life so that we can receive it. Unless we first have bodies that are alive, we can't eat this feast that's prepared for us. All that Jesus did, think of it as nothing more than a a wonderful meal, beautiful to behold, delicious to taste, wonderful to smell, satisfying to the belly, packed with nutrition to keep you strong and healthy. But it'd be no good to offer such a meal to a corpse, to a skeleton with no eyes to see how beautiful it looks, or no nose to smell how wonderful it smells, or no ability to taste it and enjoy it, no, no digestive system to process it, no strength even to lift the fork to get it into your mouth in the first place. It wouldn't do that meal, wonderful though it may be, does no good unless there's life there first to receive it. There's a reason that Jesus, when he looked ahead with his disciples, talked about the Spirit. They wanted to know what he was up to, what he was going to do. Jesus says, I'm going, but I'm going to send you somebody. It'll be better for you that I'm not here because when I go, I can send him and he will be the one to guide you and to enliven you. Jesus pointed his way to the, away from himself in that sense to the spirit. And it's the spirit's job then to point us back to Jesus and to give us the ability to see and enjoy his beauty and power in our lives. It's his work to bring home all the goodness of God and his grace to the lives of his people, stirring our appetites, showing us his beauty, feeding us on his goodness, and converting that into power. That's why what we're going to look at this morning is so important. That's why you need it. It's no good being a Christian apart from the spirit of God at work in us. What we're going to do this morning is look at the story in which we're told of the spirit coming in the way that Ezekiel prophesied into the lives of God's people. We're going to look at what happened. And then after that, simply, we're going to look at what it means. This morning, we're going to look at what happened on the day of Pentecost. And then we're going to look at what it means. I want to begin by reading the story. I'm going to read the whole thing, plus a part of Peter's speech that explains it. So this is going to be a little bit longer of a reading than we've been doing together in the last few weeks. But I know you're going to enjoy it as much as I have. I want to invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read. I'm going to pick up in chapter 2, verse 1. And read all the way through verse 21. This is the word of the Lord to us. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? 
Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is God's word. You can be seated. What happened here? That's where I want to begin this morning. I want us to look together at what happened. The first words spoken in this book were words of Jesus promising that soon the Holy Spirit would come to them. He told them, don't go anywhere. Stay right here in Jerusalem until the promised Spirit, promised by my Father, comes to you. And this story in our text brings that promise to life. In a moment, we're going to talk about why why it's so important, about what it means. We're We're going to talk about this as an event that's important for the overall story of Acts and for our lives here and now. But first, I just want to tell you this story. I want to try to bring some of the details to life, as Luke does, to make sure that you see the picture that he wants us to see. Consider first the setting of this story. We're told that it's at Pentecost. They're all together, as we've already seen, obeying their Lord, waiting for him to act, and the feast that follows the Passover rolls around. The Pentecost was an annual feast, a special feast celebrated by Jews in Jerusalem, one of those that you come to Jerusalem to celebrate, 50 days after the Passover celebration. And that matters, friends. It matters for the symbolism that's packed into this event. Pentecost was a feast associated with the harvest, with the fruitfulness of the ground given by God, the provision that he made for his people. That's what they celebrated at Pentecost, a fruitful harvest, just as Ezekiel 36 promised with the coming of the Spirit. It matters because by this time, this Pentecost celebration was also associated with the law that came at Sinai. Passover celebrated Egypt, or the, the delivery from Egypt, the people of Israel being led out into freedom. Pentecost by this time had become associated with what happens next in that story, where Israel gathers at Mount Sinai and receives a word from the Lord, a law that will be good for them, that will lead to their flourishing if they obey it. This feast celebrates that. And finally, this feast matters because 
it was a big enough deal that there were devout Jews from all over that part of the world who have come to Jerusalem to celebrate. In case you didn't get that, I mean, Luke really wants you to know how many people were there and where they were from. He spends multiple verses here listing off all the nations that Jews had come from to be in Jerusalem for this event. Because what happens next, it matters that the nations have come. That's part of what God promised would happen in Ezekiel and other prophets. The setting is Pentecost, a celebration of God giving fruitfulness and his law to his people. And the setting is a Jerusalem packed with people who speak all sorts of languages from all sorts of places. Now the experience. As they're gathered, waiting like they were told to do, without any warning, they experience a sensory overload they don't even have categories to explain. First, there's what they hear. Suddenly, we're told, there came from heaven a sound that's like a mighty rushing wind. Wasn't a wind. They didn't feel anything blowing on them. They don't actually know what it was, but it sure sounded like wind. And then there's what they saw. Divided tongues as of fire. It wasn't fire. Nobody's getting burned. Nothing's being destroyed. There's not even any heat coming off of it. But it, it, it looked like fire. This fire separates and settles over every person in the room. Whatever it was that they experienced, friends, the fact that it sounded like wind and looked like fire is surely not random detail. In their scriptures, what we know of as the Old Testament, these images have symbolized God's spirit coming like a wind, like a breath into his people. And God's leadership in speech to his people in fire. Think of the burning bush, how God speaks to Moses. A thing that looks like fire, but the bush isn't consumed. So something's going on there, but not anything I know how to explain. And God speaks through it. Just as he does here. What they heard and what they saw around them, in other words, suits what happens in them. Now we're told by Luke, verse 4, they're all filled with the Holy Spirit and begin to speak with a power they had never developed and couldn't possibly explain. With God's Spirit in them, they start to speak in tongues they couldn't speak in just before. So now finally, notice the effects of what happened. They move outside the house, speaking as the Spirit gives them utterance. And understandably, it doesn't take long for them to attract a crowd. There are Jews here from every nation under heaven in the city. They hear this sound they can't explain and draw closer to figure out what's going on. What they hear when they come to check it out blows them away. Do you notice how often in the description we're told they're amazed and yet astonished? It's incredible to them, but they're perplexed. They don't know what to do with it because what they hear is their own native languages spoken by men they knew shouldn't be able to speak in their languages. Verses 7 and 8. They were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? It was almost a racist insult there, honestly. The way that they thought of Galileans, people coming from that part of the country, they, they, they had negative stereotypes for them, and, and included in that would be, these are not people that we would expect to have sort of cosmopolitan education that could speak all these different languages from other places. Galileans? And where did they learn to speak like this? How is it, verse 8, that we hear each of us in his own native language? And all of that, friends, raises the obvious question for them. 
verse 12. What does this mean? What's going on here? That's the question I think Luke wants us to answer this morning. And that's the question we want to spend the rest of our time on. Some people in the crowds have a theory about what this means. It's an easy theory, very low-hanging fruit. They're drunk. It's an interesting notion. I mean, this doesn't seem like a typical effect of alcohol on speech, but, you know, and so long as we're brainstorming for the sake of discussion, throw that one out there on the table, maybe they're drunk. Peter seems to take it, uh, maybe not quite seriously, but he picks it up and addresses it in the beginning of his words. He rises to address the crowd. He picks up their accusation en route to explaining what's really going on here, and he tells them, hey, they can't be drunk. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. I mean, for crying out loud, it's only the third hour of the day. at 9 a.m., So we know they can't be drunk. Come on. This isn't drunkenness. It's got to be something else. And then he tells us, and this is where we want to drill down. This, he says, not drunkenness, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. This, what you see in front of you, this is what the prophet foretold. In other words, this, what's just happened, This is what we've been waiting for. Peter's sermon goes on for most of this chapter. I don't think it's overstating things to call this the most important sermon that's ever been preached. It was Peter's first opportunity to do in public what Jesus told him to do. Back in Acts chapter 1, he says, you're going to get power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. And here Peter rises to witness. Most of the sermon we're actually going to consider together next week where he testifies about Jesus, who he is, what we can get from him. This week, what I want to do, though, is focus on Peter's first point where he picks up the prophecy from Joel to explain what they're seeing and hearing in front of them this very day. So understand the meaning of the event we've just talked about, to understand what happened on a level beyond just the facts of the story, but that gets to the meaning of it what we need to do is make sure we understand both the promise and the peril of this event. The prophecy from Joel points us to both. So if you're taking notes and you're following along, hopefully you've noticed there's two big sections. What happened here and what does it mean? And under what it means, we're going to focus in on two aspects of Joel's prophecy. If if we're to know what this means, we need to understand both the promise and and the peril of Pentecost. Let's start with the promise. Here's the promise built into what's happened here. I'm going to give it to you, and then we're going to chew on it together for a little while. Here's the promise. Everyone can experience God's power working in them and through them. That's the promise built into this event. That's what Joel's prophecy tells us would happen. That's what we see happening right here in front of us. The promise of Pentecost is that Everyone can experience God's power working in them and through them. I want to take this promise piece by piece and show you where it's coming from in the text. Everyone. Let's start there. Perhaps the most noticeable thing about the first verses in in Joel's prophecy is this emphasis on who will have access to God's spirit. He says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. He doesn't mean every person everywhere. That's not what happens here. It isn't what happens later in the story of Christianity. It's not what's happened in our own experience. Not everyone has God's spirit in them. He isn't meaning to say that when he says all flesh. Instead, what he's trying to get at is that this gift isn't for one type of person. 
There isn't just one category of person defined by external social categories that has access to this spirit. It's not limited by the kind of categories, in other words, that we tend to use to set people into, to, to, to separate them into the haves and the have-nots. That's why when, when the prophecy continues, expanding only means by all flesh, it, he says the spirit will be poured on sons and daughters. Male and female will have access to this spirit. And then he says on the young and the old. Age has nothing to do with who gets access to this spirit. And then he talks about servants. Your social standing does not affect whether or not you have access to this spirit. God will pour out his spirit on all flesh, we're told. Everyone can get in on this. This isn't a prize that you get for winning some sort of contest that some people are going to be better positioned to win than others. It isn't a laurel that's placed on the head of the elite. It isn't something you could buy or earn if you had enough money or power. It isn't some new level of consciousness that you get through rigid discipline or the expert guru guidance or whatever. When God pours out his spirit, he pours out his spirit freely by grace on all flesh. That's the first part built into this promise. Everyone can get in on this. Everyone can experience God's spirit working in them. There's another part to this promise. The fact that it's available to everyone, actually, I think is is connected directly to the first thing you get when God's Spirit's poured out on your life. You get the power of God renewing you from the inside out. One of the things that's most important for you to know about Christianity is that it's not a program for self-improvement. It isn't a path that you follow with a prize you win at the end if you're able to make it all the way. That's not what Christianity is. What Christianity offers with the promise of God's spirit at the center of it, is a spiritual transformation that touches every part of your life, every part of who you are, that's worked out in you by God's power, not by your own ingenuity, not by your own discipline, not by your own strength of will. I think this point is baked into the Pentecost setting that we talked about a minute ago. Luke doesn't say much about this on the surface, but I I think the timing was not arbitrary. This feast represented the fruitfulness of a harvest, of a field rich and fertile, bearing good fruit. In the Old Testament, when the, when the prophets predicted, prophets like Ezekiel predicted the Spirit of God would come to his people, the imagery that's used is barren fields, waste places, desolate places, now full of life again, now bearing fruit again, just as Pentecost celebrates. It reminds me of a, another famous prophecy of the coming of the Spirit from the prophet Jeremiah. If you want to turn in your Bibles over to Jeremiah, there's a, there's, there's a section here that's worth reading um, that, that builds on the passage from Ezekiel that we read earlier on in the, ser- in the service. I want to show you uh, specifically verses 31 to 34 of chapter 31. Turn over there in your Bibles. In Jeremiah chapter 31, Beginning in verse 31, listen to what God says. Think think about the inner renewal, the fruitfulness that comes to his people through the gift of his spirit, his power working in you, not just outside of you. Listen to this. Behold, Jeremiah writes, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. 
I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This promise right here, echoing the promise from Ezekiel 36 and from other prophets that say the same things. This is a promise of renewal from the inside out. Not some band-aid slapped onto a problem that makes it seem less difficult than what it is, but a transformation that touches the inner core of who you are that's worked out by God's power and not by yours. It's a core part of the gospel. Everything about what Jesus accomplished will remain outside of us apart from the spirit inside of us. It will remain news that might be nice on its own, but remains news for somebody else, not for me. The Spirit's work is to apply Jesus' work on the inside. So you can think about the Spirit's work in your life as a kind of gift that opens up all the other gifts that Jesus' life and work have brought to you. The promise baked into this explanation Peter gives us is that everyone can experience God's power working in them. But there's one more layer to this promise that I want to make sure you notice before we move on. It's not just that everyone can experience God's power working in them, renewing them from the inside out. It's that everyone can experience God's power also working through them. And that actually is the main thing that Peter's speech draws our attention to, that Luke wants us to notice here in in Acts chapter 2. Yes, inner renewal is a core part of how the Bible talks about this gift we're seeing play out on Pentecost. Think of that as as sort of the wide-angle lens perspective. But the zoomed-in version that we're given in this text, it's meant to draw our attention to something else about what this gift means. God's Spirit works through us. I mean, think back to Acts chapter 1, friends who have been here uh, for, for those sermons earlier in this series. What Jesus told them to wait for was the gift of the Spirit that he told them would make them powerful as his witnesses. The connection's right there. The Spirit will come on you, and then you'll tell others what you know about me. And then the main effect of this story right here in chapter 2, it, it is not once, once that, that spirit comes on them and they experience whatever it is they experience, it, it doesn't send them into some sort of private prayer closet, some sort of cloister where they take it to the next level, some sort of transcendental, wordless experience with God. Those may come by his power through his grace. That's not what they experience. What they get drives them out of their homes, out into the public, out into the street where they talk of Jesus to anyone who will listen to them. And the core part of the prophecy that Joel prophesied is that when God pours out his spirit on all flesh, they will all, young and old, male and female, rich and poor, they will all prophesy. That's what they'll do. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. It's another reference to prophecy, the way the Old Testament would speak of that gift. Your old men shall dream dreams. Same thing there. My male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. What Joel is drawing our attention to is is what God does through us when his spirit comes in us. Now, it isn't just a special office anymore commissioned to speak for God. 
Not like the Old Testament when there were specific people called as prophets and gifted for it. Now what this prophecy says and what we see play out in Acts is that everybody who's with him is a prophet for him in this sense. Speaks for God through the message he's given them about his son. What they speak for God to others in this passage and as it's developed later in the New Testament is really specific. It's not some superpower you deploy on your own. It isn't some strange and, 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 and mystical moving inside you that you then give to someone else. It, it's very specific. When they rise to prophesy, they rise to speak about Jesus. Peter's sermon is about him. His sermon is about Jesus crucified for sinners, about Jesus raised so that we don't have, to, uh, have to, to die. Jesus ascended so that he rules over everything, giving us everything that we need. His, his prophecy is always about Jesus. And then as that gets developed through the rest of the New Testament, it's the same thing. We speak for God when we speak about his son in the way that his word has given us. That has two huge implications that I want to make sure you notice before we move on. First, Christian spirituality aims at more than your personal growth and your individual religious experience. So much of the current interest in spirituality, at least on a popular level, a kind of a, a Barnes & Noble bookstore level, aims at tapping into our inner resources, at self-discovery and self-actualization and any other, other words you want to tack on to the self. Christian spirituality that which is created and sustained and empowered by God's Spirit poured out on all flesh. It's a spirituality that pushes you outward to others just as God pursued us. It's not just about me and my journey. It's not just about transcendent experiences that I can't put into words, even though those may come. It's about putting words to the greatest news in the world and sharing it with other people in God's name. That's what we see play out here as, this, as, as these first Christians experience God's Spirit. Second implication is that God's Spirit is meant to empower you for the mission God has given you. The, the precious promise of Pentecost is that every Christian has the same power now that Peter had then for delivering the same message that he chose to deliver. That means when we speak of Jesus in our homes, in our small groups, in our church, in the world, so long as our words are faithful to God's words, so long as we are speaking from what he's spoken to us, we are speaking for him, and he is speaking through us. You have this ministry. And not only do you have this ministry, you have this power. Now, I get it. We would all rather experience the power that they experienced here. I mean, I would love to be able to speak languages that I didn't study. It'd be a dream fulfilled that I didn't even have to lift a finger for. I know we want what they got, and that we can sometimes feel left out if we don't experience it or struggle with doubt about whether it's all real. But if that's where you're tempted to go right now, I want you to notice something really important in this story. By the end of the sermon, which we'll consider next week, by the end of this sermon, the crowds, we're told, are cut to the heart. The crowds respond to this sermon by asking, what must we do to be saved? But they ask that question at the end of the sermon. They don't ask that question when they hear people speaking in languages they can't understand or they, can't, they can understand but don't know where they came from. It isn't the miraculous here 
that cuts them to the heart and makes them ask, what can I, where can I get in on this? In fact, it's this eye-catching, eye-popping miraculous that they explain away quickly and easily, just as friends, just as we probably would if we saw it. They're just drunk. Because we know Galileans don't speak in languages like these. What cuts them to the heart is the gospel of Jesus crucified and risen and ruling. That is the power tool the Spirit uses to bring change. And that is a power tool that is every bit as much in my hands or your hands as it was in Peter's hands. And it's backed by the same power source. When you go to your friends with the gospel, you use what God has called you to use. And you put yourself where the Spirit's power is at work, bringing life out of death. Still happens today, even if the best you can do is stumble through in English. Now, with the minutes that we've got left, I want to show you one more thing about this this event and what it means. So I said earlier, if you want to understand not just what happened, but what it all means. To, to get an answer to the questions the crowd raise, the, the question the crowd raises to, to Peter, what does this mean? You've got to understand not just the promise that's built into Pentecost, but also the peril. The promise is that everyone, including you, everyone can experience God's power working in them and working through them. The peril of Pentecost is that this offer won't last forever. What happens at Pentecost is at once exciting, and if you understand its meaning, terrifying. Because the coming of this Spirit, according to Joel and and now to Peter, the coming of this Spirit, the fact that it's now poured out, it means that the world has entered into a period known as the last days. And it's a sign that what comes next is what Joel calls the great and magnificent day of the Lord. One of the important things to know about Christianity is our view of history. The Bible describes history not as a kind of cycle that comes and goes, comes and goes, comes and goes. Not as kind of an eternal present, but as a a thing with movement to it. It moves in one direction. It has a beginning and it will have an end. Along the way to that end, the Bible gives us benchmarks to look for. The Old Testament's prophesied, for example, the coming of a Messiah who would reunite God with his people by dying so that they could be forgiven, by rising so that they could live again. That Messiah has now come. The prophets also predicted the things that Messiah would, in, would encounter, the life that he would live, the death that he would die the resurrection that he would enjoy. Check, check, check. On the timeline, we have hit those milestones. In this biblical view of history, we're promised also that in those days, God's spirit will come out on all flesh. Not only will they have peace with God, they will have God living in them. And that's now happened. And there is no other mark on that timeline before the great and magnificent day of the Lord appears. Look closely at the images of verses 19 and 20. 
I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, the Lord said through Joel. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Friends, these images are familiar ones. They're echoed in other places in Joel and in other prophets. The blood and the fire and the smoke, the sun darkened, the moon turned to blood. These and other images like them are what the prophets used to grasp at the terrible and glorious day it was their job to predict and to warn about. The images themselves aren't really the point. You know, whether or not the moon starts to drip with blood, that's not what they were going for. What they were going for was, it was evoking something powerful, something horrifying, where what we take for granted about this world is all overturned, where the laws of nature themselves seem to come unwound. Think of these images as like broad brushstrokes sketching out something from a distance, still more than a little blurry from that distance. But what they point to is named for us in Joel in what Peter quotes here and throughout the prophets of the Old Testament. What they point to in their own blurry way is called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord describes a moment in time, at the very end of time, that is the moment of perfect and complete reckoning. It will be a day when every trace of evil is revealed from the hidden thoughts that no one else sees to the historical cruelties with which we fill our history books. All revealed before the judgment seat of the maker of heaven and earth who not only sees everything but whose power bows to no one and whose perfect commitment to justice won't leave any wrong unpunished. Friends, surely there is at least part of you that longs for that day, craves it, even if you haven't realized it or known what to call it. Isn't it true that in our day, the powerful can sometimes intimidate those who might otherwise hold them accountable? Don't you hate that? Isn't it true in our day that the wealthy can sometimes buy their way out of justice? Aren't you sick of that? Isn't it true that in our day the well-trained, the well-resourced, the quick-thinking can spin their way out from guilt, convincing the masses there's nothing to see here? Aren't you aching to see the truth shine through, clear and undeniable? In our world, the reality is justice just isn't always done. Think of the hundreds of thousands of slaves, many of them our brothers and sisters in Christ, who lived and died in chains while their afflictors lived in luxury before their eyes. Think about the fact that in our time right now, roughly, somewhere around 80% of sexual abuse cases go unreported, which means that the consequences, which are real and unavoidable, are borne only by the victims and not by the perpetrators. I could go on. You could too. Here the reality is justice isn't always done. Aren't you sick of that? Somewhere inside of you, if you're paying attention, I know you are sick of it. But the problem, friends, the problem is that we, not, not one of us, can escape the judgment that we crave. 
if the justice we crave depends on a judge who knows everything, on a judge who has power that's unstoppable and a commitment that's unstoppable, then the justice we crave is not a justice we can survive. Imagine every thought transcribed and read aloud. Imagine every deed done in privacy, seen and recorded. The Bible says there is no one righteous, not even one. Isn't that true? The day of the Lord will show that truth once and for all. And what Pentecost means, the peril built into this event is that the day of the Lord, the day that our hearts crave, but that our lives could never survive, is near. You could think of these verses as the final stages in a launch sequence. You've had the Messiah, the signs and the wonders, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to sit until his enemies are his footstool, and now the Spirit has been poured out on all flesh. It's all there. It's all happened. This is that, Peter is saying. And the next thing to come will be the day of the Lord. It's all one big organic process, already begun and now unstoppable. And now there's no buffer. No room for, I'll think about that tomorrow. An image I have that helps me understand the weight of this peril that Joel's prophecy puts on us. Now that we know the Spirit has come. I don't know if it'll help you, but it helps me. I don't know if you're one of these people who drives your, your car to the very brink of an empty gas tank, but I have often been that guy. And I, um, you know, when you're, when you're operating on one of the old analog ones, you know, it gets lower, maybe the light comes on to warn you, but as long as that line that goes with the E is still there and you're above it, then you know you've got some time and you can hold off. A while back, we were, a few years ago, we were, we were traveling in a, a car that had one of the digital ones that tells you how many miles left that you've got to go. Me being me, I wasn't intimidated by the fact that I had 15 miles left on an interstate in the middle of nowhere in West Tennessee. What I didn't know was that at 15 miles and under, it just cuts off. So after the 15 mile left in this tank, just lines. So there's no buffer now. I don't know how many more miles I've got left to go but I'm not going to get any more signs between now and then. The signs are all here. The next thing I experience is an empty tank. This car won't go. I think, I think basically what Peter is saying here through the prophet Joel's words is that that, that that meter is gone. It's off. There's no buffer. There's no waiting. This is the time. For now, There is a promise built into the coming of the Spirit. This is the day of opportunity. He is here to give life to the dead and to give you encouragement from this gospel that Peter rises now to preach. Now is the day of opportunity. But the day of the Lord is coming. It will come as a thief in the night. There will be no other signs ahead of his coming. So now is the day of salvation. Friends, if you're here to evaluate Christianity and haven't yet decided whether to follow Jesus, what I want you to know is that it is this day of the Lord 
this certainty of justice, matching the seriousness of our sin, this right here is what makes Jesus relevant to us. Yeah, he's most popular for his moral teachings, and there's good reason for that. But Jesus, far more often than he passed on these moral teachings, talked of judgment because we haven't lived up to the moral standards that he taught us. And the reason he talks so often of judgment in his teaching is the same as the reason for which his life marched so relentlessly to death, so purposefully. He taught what he taught so people could understand why they needed him. He died the death that he died so that your need for redemption and forgiveness could be met. And so that this day of the Lord becomes only a promise and not a peril. Verse 20 warns of the judgment to come. Verse 21 says, It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You can call on him this morning and he will hear you and save you. Jesus, by his perfect life, Jesus, by his death on the cross that he didn't deserve, Jesus, by his resurrection, Jesus, by his ascension to the right hand of the Father, has earned the right to forgive you and save you. And he will give you everything that you need. Call on him today. Christian friends, this is a word for us too. There's some encouragement here to remember why Jesus is so necessary, why it's such good news that he's come, why it's so wonderful to have him. But this message is meant for more than that. It's also meant to remind us that we're living in the last days and we ought to act like it. It's not a call to fear and trembling. I'm not saying we live on the edge of our seats as if we may or may not make it. It is rather a call to live with what you might call joyful or hopeful vigilance. The coming of the Spirit means we ought to be living with an urgency that doesn't stop. Look at the Christians in Acts. When this Spirit is poured out on all flesh, look what they do. They're shot out like a cannon into the world. They consider their own lives cheap. Why not spend everything they have for him? Because it's the day of the Lord. It's coming. It's near. Peter preached to anyone who would listen, even when he was threatened with prison and death. He knew the day of the Lord was coming. Nothing compares with that. Think of the unnamed faithful who gathered daily to listen to the apostles teach them God's word at the end of this chapter, who shared their possessions with anyone who had need, didn't hold on to what they had. They just gave and gave and gave. They knew the day of the Lord was coming. Nothing else compares with that. Are you living like it's the last days? Don't you want to? How could you? What escape routes would you need to unplug from your life to pay more urgent attention? What doors would you need to open that you have since kept closed? What conversations would you need to have? I want to encourage you to take questions like these to your friends this week. To evaluate the urgency we're living with and to pray that God by his spirit would drive us to it. I'm going to pray that now as we continue to worship this morning. Father, I thank you for speaking by your word again this morning. We thank you for giving us clarity that we can't live without. We pray now for the spirit's work in us to give us love for what we've heard. 
We know there's much in us that would turn off or be turned off by the message we've heard today, especially this message of judgment to come. I pray that you would protect us from ourselves and that your spirit would give us the ability to see clearly the truth about the world and where it's headed, about the goodness and beauty of it you will redeem, about the ugliness, the injustice that you will set right, and about our only hope offered to us in Jesus, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Help us to see the whole package and to respond to this call with repentance and faith right now. We pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen.